good evening, everybody. I want us to do a couple of things. Well, first of all, so I'm, I'm 55. <laughs> so I guess that means I'm just getting started. Uh, I mean, and I'm just trying to think, 40 more years. I, wouldn't it be awesome to have 40 more years to serve? And I hope that I would do it as faithfully as you have, Miss Ann. Thanks for your example and... What an example for all of us, right, to aspire to just keep serving the Lord. We're actually going to talk about that some tonight when we get into our study. Uh, we're going to, I'm not going to be in Leviticus. I know you're very disappointed. Uh, I'm sure. I can just feel like all the air leave the room. We're not going to be in Leviticus. Um, we're going to be in Nehemiah. We're going to look at the book of Nehemiah tonight. But before we do that, there are a few things that I did want to mention as we normally do on a Wednesday night. Uh, this is a, a smaller group of us that can just take a few moments and focus on some things that uh, we may just want to come together in prayer over. And so one thing that I want to mention, this is just kind of a, a hard thing to share, but but a reality that we just want to embrace and with hope and with confidence in the Lord. Uh, many of you, and some of you may have already heard this, but many of you will know the name Chris Causey, if I say that name. Yeah. So Chris uh, was actually sent out from here to Boston uh, to plant Encounter Church, and the Lord has used him greatly. He and Jason left together and planted that church and have just really been used greatly of the Lord to establish that church, and um, God continues to use them greatly. And uh, Chris has just received some news regarding his health that I just wanted to make you aware of so that we could rally around him in prayer and so that you would know maybe to reach out and encourage him if the Lord leads you to do that. Uh, Chris, uh, and he's announced this to his church, so I don't feel like I'm uh, betraying any trust to share this, but uh, Chris has been diagnosed with some type of cancer and is like really rapidly jumped into uh, an aggressive treatment for that. I think with um, high hopes that they're going to be able to uh, help him and that he'll recover from that, but just the reality of, of that diagnosis and then you know, dealing with what's ahead for them, I know it's going to be a challenge for he and his family and for their church family. And so I, I wanted to mention that for sure and ask that uh, we that we rally around them in prayer, and I, I know you would want to do that. I also, I know that we did this last week, but I don't think we can ever do enough of this, right? We continue to see the news uh, about what's happening in the Holy Land. It's hard for us to uh, understand even what's happening uh, today. I took a few moments just to look at some of the images of what's happening. And, yeah, it's, it's just heartbreaking. It really is heartbreaking. And you just wonder, what what is going on? And I think for all of us, that there, there is that sense of what is happening and what what is next. And so what a great time then for us just to go before the Lord, right, and bring something that overwhelms us that we don't have an answer for, nor do we have an explanation for. Uh, we only have our faith and hope in the Lord that he knows exactly what he's doing. And so I, I wanted to lead us tonight just to take, again, the opportunity as a church family to pray and I'm going to read these prayer points to you again just to direct us in how we pray. And then after I share these things, we'll pray both for Chris and his family, his situation, and we'll, we'll lift up these requests as, as well. And so regarding our prayer for Israel tonight, uh, let's pray for the thousands of people who are grieving the loss of loved ones, and that number just continues to, to grow and so the grief also continuing to grow. Uh, let's pray for survivors and for the thousands of people who've been injured, as well as the many who are now hostages or being held as prisoners of war, just all kind of atrocities there that 
we can't fathom what people are feeling tonight, what they're going through. So let's bring them to the Lord. Let's pray for the families and the individuals who have been displaced due to the sudden conflict. Pray for the resources that they're going to need, things like shelter and food and water and medicine. Uh, so many things that we take for granted that are not readily available to, to many people today. And so let's pray for, for that. Let's also pray for a swift end uh, to this conflict and for peace in that region. Um, and we know who the Prince of Peace is. We know the only source of peace that is available would be the Lord. And so we're going to ask him to establish his peace there. And then finally, we want to pray for the lost um, and pray that those who have an incomplete view of God's goodness and his grace will come to know Jesus as Savior and Lord. And I, I would just say that on both sides of this conflict, right? Uh, the incomplete knowledge of the glory and grace of God that is really the greatest tragedy uh, because that is the thing that carries eternal consequence. And so I mentioned that one last uh, so that it is at the front of our minds even as we go before the Lord in prayer. Let's pray for the Spirit of God to open blind eyes uh, and to just really reveal himself clearly, clearly reveal himself as a God who is gracious and kind, who sent his son to save sinners. And we'll just go to the Lord right now in prayer. You've heard those requests. I'm sure there are other things going on in your heart and mind tonight that are heavy. Uh, so we'll just take a few moments and pray together. I'm going to be quiet, let you offer up your prayer. And in a moment, I'll, I'll close our time of prayer and then we'll jump into our time in the Word. So let's, let's pray together. Lord, we thank you that, that you hear your people when they pray and that we can have that confidence tonight and thankful that you are not dependent on us to tell you our needs. You're not waiting for us to inform you of things that have slipped by you. You are fully aware, fully aware of where Chris Causey is tonight and what he is wrestling with as he considers the diagnosis that he's been given and the future treatment, aggressive treatment, and, and that hopeful, complete, and full recovery for him. We, we just surround him tonight in prayer and pray for your grace and mercy to be poured out on him in abundance. I pray that more than any other time in his life, maybe he would just sense the, the presence of the Lord ministering to him and serving him much like he has been your ambassador, standing on your behalf, ministering to and serving your people. Lord, may your spirit minister to him tonight and to his family and to his church family. Lord, work in their hearts and in their lives to encourage them and to give them hope. Lord, we pray for the nation of Israel and the conflict uh, that we're just being bombarded these days with the images of violence and hatred and, and war. And Lord, it's hard for us to comprehend what's happening. 
And we just want to pause and pray for the thousands of people who are grieving the loss of loved ones. We pray for the many who are survivors of what's happened and the, the, those who have sustained serious injuries and are recovering and for those who are being held as hostages and prisoners of war. God, would you minister to these people and meet their needs? Lord, we pray for the displaced, those who are looking for shelter, food and water, medicine, and other needs that they would have that they're struggling to find. Lord, we pray for you to bring peace to that conflict and that you would just establish peace in that region of the world. And Lord, that, that will require divine power. We, we know that. It will not be because of political policies and parties and meetings. and yeah, it, it will be only because of the grace of God and the power of God that peace can come. So bring your peace. And finally, Lord, we pray for the lost. We recognize that, that even all that is taking place is really more the, the symptoms. It, it's symptomatic of the disease of sin. It, it's, it's the result of spiritual death. What, what we're seeing, those images are a reflection of that, of the death, the spiritual death that marks people on both sides of that and so we pray for the work that only the Spirit can do to open blind eyes, to soften hard hearts, to convict of sin, of righteousness, and the judgment to come, and to bring people to a knowledge of the truth that Jesus is Messiah, that Jesus is the Savior who died and rose for our salvation. Lord, may that message pierce the hearts of millions in that region. We pray that you bring an awakening, a spiritual awakening in that region that would bring peace between men and God and then make it possible for there to be peace between men and men. Lord, we pray, work powerfully to reveal truth and to save the lost. Lord, thank you for this time to pray and to leave these things that we're burdened with, with the one who is able to make grace abound. And we offer these things to you in faith tonight. We trust you with this. And we pray tonight in the name of Jesus. Amen. 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 All right. Well, we're going to jump into the book of Nehemiah tonight. And uh, I, I just want us to observe some things that, and there's a reason. There's a reason for Nehemiah. There's actually a connection to things that I feel like are actually very relevant to us, things that we're observing. And namely, we've just mentioned, I told you earlier, that today I was looking at the images that the, the news outlets are, you know, constantly bombarding us with of the things that are happening. And it's amazing to me as to how the, the images, the, the physical battle that is raging in that part of the world, because we... We see the, the smoke and we see the fire and we turn on the video clips and we hear the sound of explosions and, and jets flying over and gunfire. Because of all of that, we, we embrace the reality of war because we see it. And, and it seems more real because it's on our screen, it's on our phone and 
our eyes can see it, our ears can hear it, and so we, we feel that very deeply, right? It's more real to us. And I was just thinking about that uh, as we were preparing to, to be together tonight in this time of study and just reminded of some of the unseen battles that are being fought that are more spiritual in nature, some crises in our lives that are not as visible. We don't always hear and see the news is not reporting. The news is not talking about the things that are happening in terms of the spiritual battle that is being waged in each of our lives and in the community that we live in. And so my mind was kind of drawn back to thinking about what Nehemiah's experience was like when he had to deal with the reality of the physical challenges of returning to his motherland that had been destroyed physically by physical enemies. And he gets the report. Remember how Nehemiah gets the report from a brother of what has happened and then just watching what unfolded as Nehemiah receives word of these physical things that took place. And I was thinking about then, how should we respond and what is there for us to learn from Nehemiah's example that would help us respond to the spiritual crisis that I feel like our community is in these days. I think you heard me share the numbers. I don't remember if I shared it on a Wednesday night or a Sunday morning or both. Uh, probably both, but I'm going to tell you again on a Wednesday night. Well, let me ask you, within a three-mile radius of this church, how many people live? All right, great. So we did announce that somewhere. Almost 55,000 people live within a three-mile radius of our church. How many of those people profess to be born-again Christians? About 25%, actually slightly less than 25%, which means three out of every four people that we meet in our community are far from God. They're under the, the rule of our enemy, Satan. They're under his power and they're, they're bound. And scripture describes them not as just being sin sick, but being spiritually dead. That's three out of four people that we meet within a three-mile radius of our church. Now, there's no smoke. There's no gunfire around that. There's no video. There's no explosion. There's no, there's no news outlets that, that are covering that, that are saying three out of four people are spiritually dead and destined for an eternal separation from God in a devil's hell. We're not hearing that. And so then it would be easy for us to just let that shift to the back burner and us not realize the responsibility that God has given to us as a church to respond to that crisis. Are you hearing what I'm saying? I'm saying that while it is right for our hearts to break, for what is happening in the Holy Land. It is also equally heartbreaking, the spiritual realities in our own community that I think are too easy for us to just overlook and to not realize not just the incredible opportunity that we have, but the responsibility that we've been given to do something in response. And so I wanted us 
to look at the example of Nehemiah because I believe when we look at Nehemiah's life and we see him responding to a physical crisis, there are some principles that I feel like should direct us as a church in how we will respond to the crisis of lostness. And let me just say it. There is no greater problem in the world today than lostness. Because it is the one problem that if it is not solved, it becomes an eternal problem. You get that, right? So what did Nehemiah do? Let's open our Bibles to Nehemiah and explore together what Nehemiah does. And we'll just open with chapter 1, and we're, we're just going to kind of walk through and, and bounce around from verse to verse and observe his actions as he responds to the news that comes. And the, the first thing that I, that I see here is we look at chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. We see that Nehemiah, he, he hears the news of trouble in Judah, and it literally breaks his heart. And, and I would say that, that would be the first thing that we need the Spirit's help with in this room tonight. Is that when we hear the news of the spiritual realities in our own community, the realities of people being spiritually dead, and being viewed as enemies of God, that that news would wreck us like it wrecked Nehemiah. When I say wrecked him, I want you to notice what he does. It says in verse 3, when he receives the news, the remnant there in the province who had survived the exile is in great trouble, great trouble and shame. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates are destroyed by fire. Look at verse 4. And this would be the response that I think tonight we should ask God by His Spirit to give us. Because I think until we feel the weight of this, we don't kick into gear to engage and do something about it. Our response at least a right response to the crisis of lostness, will follow this first. Look at what it says. As soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days. And I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. So the response of Nehemiah first was that, that he sat down and wept and mourned. He literally cried like someone who is grieving the loss of a loved one. We've all wept. We've all experienced the grief of loss. Right? A friend, a family member, a spouse, a child. And you know the pain that, that was there in your heart that, that brought about that, that brokenness and the, the weeping and the mourning. And this is what set in on the heart of Nehemiah when he gets the report. Oh, the walls are they're destroyed. The gates have been burned. The city it's in trouble and shame. And when he considered that, he sits down and he weeps and he mourns. And he did that, it says, for days. And he fasted and he prayed before the God of heaven. What is it tonight that makes you weep and mourn? When was the last time we wept and mourned for days the spiritual condition 
of people in our community, of neighbors, of family members, of classmates. And I think that's where part of our response begins. It begins in our heart. His heart was truly grieved by the condition of the city. Others knew the shape the city was in, but Nehemiah emerged as someone who responded. And will our grief and mourning move us to respond? Do we really grieve the spiritual condition of our community the way Nehemiah grieved the condition of the city of Jerusalem? And as he wept and mourned, looking at verses 4 through 11, a few things that, that I observed there. One thing was, as he wept and mourned and fasted and prayed, he remembered the greatness of God and his faithfulness to keep his covenant. So as he prayed for the situation, it was with a knowledge of, it was with a memory of, the greatness of God and the faithfulness of God to keep his covenant promises. And so he prayed with hope. Notice another thing that was a part of his prayer in these verses. It talks about how he confessed his sin. And not only his sin, he confessed the sins of his father's. He confessed the sin of his nation, the people of his nation. He recognized that, that sometimes, I'm not saying that always, but sometimes suffering and sometimes the crises that we see around us are consequential to things that we have done or that others have done. It, it sometimes is a direct consequence of sin, and I think the discipline of God that would have been a huge part of the ruin of this city in this moment was something that Nehemiah carried an awareness of and he felt that need to go before the Lord in confession, confessing their sin, desiring to walk in repentance, remembering the covenant promises of God and hoping for his forgiveness and hoping for his mercy to be poured out. We also see in his, in his plea, if we look down at verse 11, he says, O Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight to fear your name and give success to your servant today and grant him mercy in the sight of this man. And so, as he prays, not only is he remembering the greatness and faithfulness of God, he's confessing sin, and he's petitioning God for his power to bring success in what he feels God is stirring him to do in response to the crisis. Again, Thinking about our response to the crisis, does it move us to weep? Does it move us to mourn? Does it move us to grieve as we consider lostness in our community? That'd be the first thing. And then the second thing is, what is our first response? Is our first response to, to look at what resources that we have available and we run to the rescue? Is our first response to go into the think tank and for us to sort this thing out ourselves? Or is our first response to go in desperation before the Lord and to ask for Him to give success? We need to recognize, just like Nehemiah did, the need of the hour, whether we're talking about the realities of a physical war in the Holy Land or if we're talking about the realities of a spiritual war in Taylor, South Carolina, the need of the hour is for God to give us success as we move towards lostness 
to engage our community with the gospel of Jesus. We need his power to be released in our life to make the effort that we give effective. And so I want to challenge us first as we think about the spiritual crisis, as we hear of the trouble in our land, God, break our hearts with that news and stir within us a sense of dependence upon the Lord as we weep and pray and fast. May it drive us to a greater dependence upon the Lord to do what only the Lord can do to solve the problem of lostness. I want you to notice in chapter 2, beginning with verse 1, as he goes to the king. By the way, Nehemiah's role is he's the cupbearer of the king, which means he is a trusted, one of the most trusted servants, we would say, in the, in the king's court. Trusted because he's the one guy who is vetting everything that's going to be put on the king's plate or in the king's cup. And so if there were to be a subtle attempt to try and take the king of Persia out, to take Cyrus out, uh, the, the most obvious place to go, the three options that somebody would have every single day of the year would be to put poison in what he drank or what he ate. And to trust someone like Nehemiah with the vetting of everything that he would take in means there was a high level of trust that God had placed in him, a high level of trust that the king had placed in him. And when he goes before the king to do his duty, I don't know if you see it or not, but, but the king recognizes, we see in verse 2, he notices that, that Nehemiah's his face is, is, is long, he's sad, and he's wondering, hey, what, what, what's going on with you? Something's going on. This expression on your face can only be an expression of the sadness of heart and so he he was sad and he would he would explain why he's sad he said why should not my face be sad when the city the place of my father's graves lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire then the king said to me what are you requesting so I prayed to the God of heaven, and I said to the king, If it pleases the king, and if your servant has found favor in your sight, that you send me to Judah, to the city of my father's graves, that I may rebuild it. Now I want to observe a couple of things here in those few verses. The first thing, the, the sadness that we see is linked to the grief that he feels in his heart for the situation. But do you also see that there's fear in his heart? As he is contemplating a right response to the crisis in Jerusalem, there's fear in his heart. And I would say that's normal. I think sometimes the thing that hinders us from stepping forward to address the crisis is fear. One of the things I love about Nehemiah is he acknowledges the fear, but he still steps forward. He, he's not, he's not going to let fear deter him from taking responsibility of what God is calling him to do in response to the crisis. And then we see he makes his request. In verse 5, his request is basically, give me permission to go. Send me. He's wanting permission to, to be excused from what his duties would normally be there in the king's court. Give me permission to go. But second, he's going to ask verses 7, and I think verse 9 there, 7 and 9, he's going to ask for protection. In verse 7, he's, he says... Um, Give me letters that I can take to present to the governors of the provinces beyond the river so that they'll let me pass through. And so, in a sense, give me some, 
Give me something that will, will help me navigate this place as I go and try to engage that, that I've got your protection to go with me. And then in verse 8, we see that he's in need of provision as he considers how will we, how will we rebuild these walls. He knows that the materials that he, he's going to need, he will have to have help with. And so in verse 8, we see it that he's requesting a letter to Asaph, the keeper of the king's forest, that he may give me timber to make beams for the gates of the fortress of the temple and for the wall of the city and for the house that I shall occupy. And so he's making his request to the king to send him, to protect him, to provide for him that he can go and rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. And notice what response comes at the end of verse 8 it says and the king granted me what I asked for the good hand of my God was upon me Nehemiah experienced favor with the king who granted him his request was willing to send him was willing to send him with the letters was willing to resource him for this task that he had been given to do and while it was significant for him to have the king's favor, there was a more critical need that Nehemiah was going to have. He was going to need more than the favor of a king. He was going to need the power and the favor of God. And I think he's acknowledging that even at the end of verse 8 there when he says, the good hand of my God was Upon me. One of the first principles that I think we should take as we consider how will we engage the community that we live in with the tools that you've been learning in your life group. You realize that you're being trained Sunday after Sunday in your life group to respond to the crisis of lostness in Taylor, South Carolina. We're not talking about lostness in South Asia. We could talk about it. There's plenty to talk about with lostness in South Asia. We're not talking in this moment about lostness in Israel or Palestine. We could. That is of great concern to us. But right now we're talking about lostness in Taylor, South Carolina that we can't overlook, that our hearts must weep and grieve and mourn over. And we should be compelled by that sense of grief as people who have been born again to engage our community with the good news of the gospel. And that's why Sunday after Sunday in the month of October, you've been learning how to be a witness. You've been learning what is the gospel and how do I share it using the three circles. You've been learning what is my testimony and how could I share that in three minutes with the people that I meet in the market or wherever I might meet them or people in my circle of influence. You've been given those tools in hopes that the crisis of lostness will break our hearts and move us to action. And when we move to action, when we leave the, the, the Bible studies and when we leave the worship services and when we leave the life group meetings and go back into the community that is struggling with the crisis of lostness, what are the principles that, that will guide us, guide us as we engage? And the first one that I see here is that Nehemiah works in God's power and in God's might. Yes, he needed the king's favor. Yes, he needed provision. He needed timber. Yes, he needed escorts to go with him. But more than that, he needed the good hand and the gracious hand of God to rest on him. And so do we as we go into the community. We need the gracious hand of God to rest on us. We need what he appealed to God for in verse 11, chapter 1. We need for God to give success 
to us as his servants as we enter into our community. And in chapter 2, look at verse 20. Then I replied to them, the God of heaven will make us prosper and we his servants will arise and build. But you have no portion or right or claim in Jerusalem. The hope of Nehemiah was that the God of heaven would go with him as he sought to rebuild those walls. And the hope of Taylor's First Baptist members is not the tools that we've been given, not the personality of the one holding those tools, not our savvy or our skills or our experience. The hope that we need as we go and engage the community with the tools that we've been given is that the Lord's hand of favor would rest on us and that he would give us success as we enter into the brokenness of people's lives and proclaim to them the grace of God. Nehemiah discovered that really all he needed was the Lord's favor. And we're no different. Really, all we need to see something significant happen in the spiritual battle in Taylor's is the favor of God to rest on us. And when his hand is upon us, we'll discover that we actually have everything that we need. C.S. Lewis wrote this quote, He who has God and many other things has no more than he who has God alone. If God goes with us in response to the crisis of lostness, we have everything we need. And may I remind you, the Great Commission concludes, the final words of Jesus to his disciples concludes with a promise. What is the promise at the end of the Great Commission? As the disciples were being sent to respond to the crisis of lostness in the first century. As he sends them to go and make disciples, he sends them with the assurance, I am with you to the very end of the age. Church, he is with you as you respond to the crisis in Taylor's. And he is enough. Amen? first principle for us is that we work in God's power and in his might. The second principle, we see it halfway through chapter 2. I want you to notice verses 17 and 18. Nehemiah had gone and assessed the state of affairs around the city of Jerusalem himself. As the king sends him, he goes out on these secret missions and he just inspects the walls and he sees it. He sees it himself and he carries the weight himself of what he's observed. But he knows that he can't be the only one working to rebuild those walls. And so look at chapter 2 verse 17 at what he does. He returns with a broken heart and he says to the people there, you see the trouble we are in, how Jerusalem lies in ruins with its gates burned. Come, let us build the wall of Jerusalem that we may no longer suffer derision. Do you see what he's doing? He is casting a vision for others to see the brokenness and to feel the burden and to respond as co-laborers with him in the work of rebuilding those walls. He knows that he needs partners. And how do the partners respond? Look at verse 18. And I told them of the hand of my God 
that had been upon me for good and also of the words that the king had spoken to me. And they said, let us arise, go and build. So they strengthened their hands for the good work. Nehemiah saw that he first needed to work in the power and might of God. But second, he saw that he needed to partner together with others who would build those walls with him. And as he makes his appeal, they respond by saying, let us rise and build. They understood that they needed to work together. Now, I want you to look at the next chapter, and it is literally the next chapter, chapter 3, because 30 times, or almost 30 times, we see the word next, or next to, or after him, or after them. If you look at it quickly, you'll see it over and over again. Verse 2, and next to him the men of Jericho built, and next to them Zakur the son of Emery built. Verse 4, and next to them Merimoth, and next to him Meshalem, and next to them Zadok. You see how many times that's said? Over and over and over it says, next, 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 or after, after, after. It is describing the partnership of many who came together around a common vision to rebuild the walls around Jerusalem. Now you realize they were not building 30 individual walls. It was 30 times that it's mentioned that individuals are building Sections of one unified wall. And the principle for us tonight is this. As we look at the crisis of lostness in Taylor's, with broken hearts, we feel compelled to engage. And we're learning the tools that we need to engage with. Well, first, we're going to depend on God, His strength and His favor. And second, we're going to work together in partnership. We're going to work together with a common vision to see that every home in our community has an opportunity to hear a clear presentation of the gospel. We're going to see the work of the kingdom accomplished as we work together as the local church. But let me say this as well. Is the task a task that Taylor's First Baptist Church can do alone? Even if all the members of Taylor's decided to work together, are we a big enough force to really address lostness where we live, work, and play? So what does that mean? It means in the same way that we would call on each other to be united in our focus and in our effort to engage the city, it means that we would look at sister churches in that same way, that we would be willing to share resources and to have a common vision for how we would work together, not to see one another any longer as competitors, but as co-laborers in this task of seeing the gospel saturate our community. Isn't it time for us to start talking more about us than about me? Isn't it time for us to start talking about the kingdom of God more than we talk about the individual churches and their identity? I think so 
if we are to address the crisis of lostness, our principle is we will have to partner together as members of this body, and our body will have to partner together with the members of other bodies to see the gospel spreading. The work of the kingdom will be accomplished by local churches that work together in cooperation, not as competitors, but as partners. There's a third principle, and I know our time is almost gone, but I want you to see this. Tons of opposition, tons of opposition that comes as Nehemiah tries to engage in the work of rebuilding these walls. And some of that opposition was coming from the outside. There were those people, and they're, and they're named. We can see their names here. Sanballat, Tobiah, uh, Gershom. These are people that are mentioned that are the, the, the face of the enemy who, who wanted to stand in the way of the rebuilding of these walls. And so time and time again, they're facing the opposition from those. They're trying to deceive them. They're trying to call them down off the wall, trying to distract them, trying to discourage them by jeering at them and, and taunting them and, and telling them, oh, if a, if a fox were to get on that wall, it would, it would tumble and fall, trying to intimidate to cause the work to come to a halt. There was plenty of opposition that came from those outside of their camp. But there was also opposition that came from within. Fatigue set in as they engaged in the battle for a season. Some got tired. Some got discouraged. Some felt overworked. Some felt taken advantage of. The opposition also was coming from within. And here's what I would say to us. The principle for us is this. If we're going to engage our community, expect opposition from outside. And expect also the surprising opposition that will surface internally as well. And let's make sure that we face that opposition and don't become overwhelmed by it, but pray in faith the way that Nehemiah did. I want you to look at chapter 4, verse 6. Chapter 4, verse 6, as they're dealing with the opposition. They continued the work, and they worked, it says, with diligence. In chapter 4, verse 13 through 23, it describes them fighting with courage. They literally had people standing on the walls that were, were some guarding as others had their tools and were working. But it's a picture of them facing the opposition and not letting it stop their efforts. And in chapter 6, verse 9, we see where it says they just prayed in faith. It says, now they all wanted to frighten us, thinking that that they would frighten us and that our hands would drop from the work and it would not be done. But what did they do? They cried out in faith. But now, oh God, strengthen my hands. They worked through opposition. They persevered and endured despite the opposition. And the final principle for us would be to work until... Our mission is accomplished. If we look at chapter 6 again, and I know we're rushing through this now, but chapter 6, verse 15, it says, So the wall was finished on the 25th day of the month Elul in 52 days. And when all our enemies heard of it, all the nations around us were afraid and fell greatly in their own esteem. For they perceived that the work had been accomplished with the help of our God. As they depended on God to empower them for the work, 
as they partnered together in the work, as they endured the hardship, the opposition that came, they worked, they worked with steadfastness until the walls were rebuilt. And when the walls were rebuilt, who received the glory? Was this a credit to an incredible construction crew? No, it says the people fell greatly in their esteem. They, they, they really saw themselves as feeble, insignificant people in light of the display of the might of God, the power and the glory of God that was displayed in the miracle of rebuilding these walls in such a short amount of time. I think that for many of us, there is a temptation to stop engaging in the work of mission. And we have a great example tonight that we've honored a, a saint in our midst uh, who has labored in that role for 40 years and continuing to serve and to sit here and endure this long study of Nehemiah. But what a great picture. I said at the start, I'm 55. I'm just getting started. I wonder if tonight, whatever your age is, however long you have been in this battle, this spiritual battle, however you have been involved in using your gifts to invest in the health of this church and the way this church is impacting our community. I wonder if today you would renew your commitment to work until the mission is accomplished. And the mission for us will be accomplished when Christ brings us home. And until then, until then, brothers and sisters, may the the burden of lostness in our community drive us to weep and mourn and fast and pray. And may it drive us to say, I will contribute in the rebuilding of spiritual walls around the community of tailors. And I will work in the power and might of God. And I will work together in partnership with the members of this church and with our sister churches around us. And I will work through opposition and through challenges. And I will work until the work is done. May the Lord use us as a church, literally, as we have set before us as a vision to change the world for Jesus. The beginning of changing the world for Jesus is embracing the change that needs to come in Taylor's. Let's build the walls around Taylor's and see God's glory made known in our community. Amen? I want to pray for you. Lord, thank you for your word. I know it's hard to sit in one place and listen to this voice for that long of a period of time and to capture everything that has been shared. And so my prayer is that by your grace, that you would cause the things of significance that need to be remembered tonight by those who are present to just remain in their hearts and minds. Namely, that you would break our hearts over lostness. And that the broken heart that we feel would drive us to action, to engage. And that our engagement would be following the principles that we learned tonight. That we would work in your power and might. That we would work together. That we would work through every challenge and opposition. And that we would work and be found faithful working until you call us home.
Lord, bless and use this body of believers to change the community of tailors and to change the world for Jesus. In your name we pray.